This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today, folks, we have an unusual Dreamland, unusual in the sense, not that it's not about the edge, because it is, but it's also basically about something else, which is the quality of life in a community after a tragedy. Now, I don't know if you guys watch the news. I, I certainly do. And you will find, if you look at the news, that one town after another in this country, and in fact in the world, but especially in the central United States, which has a some very rough weather, is just being beaten up by the climate, by the weather, by tornadoes uh, in the far west, by floods and fires. So what happens afterwards? Well, we're looking at and talking to Bill Kusula. Uh, Bill, you give me your last name, please. Yes, it's Kusulis. Kusulis. Okay, Bill Kusulis. I was going to mispronounce it, um, but I figured, why do that? Why not get just get it from the horse's mouth or the Kusulis's mouth? Um, anyway, this is uh, he's a a. Uh, uh, basically a scientist and who has uh, studies trauma and post-traumatic growth. And the fascinating thing about this particular story, which he calls Bridging the Tragedy, written with his wife, Jackie, who is unfortunately not feeling very well uh, today and can't be with us, subtitled Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley, it's about not just the Mothman and the Silver Bridge tragedy that occurred after at the end at the climax of the Mothman event, but also about what happened afterwards. Was the Mothman evil? Well, Bill, let's go way back to the beginning. What brought you into this? Because you don't seem to me to be, I mean, aside from the fact that you live in a dungeon of some sort, uh, <laughs> uh, you don't seem to me to be the kind of person who's going to be studying something like the Mothman uh, paranormal mystery. Whitley, thank you. Thanks for the introduction, and, and thank you for having me on the show. I, unfortunately, my wife Jackie's not feeling 100%, so she begged off kind of at the last minute. But yeah, I mean, I guess for all intents and purposes, looking at who I am, what we do for a living, my wife and I, and how we got connected with Mothman, I guess I can back that up a little bit and tell you that I've been a fan and interested in the paranormal since I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up, basically, the first book my mom read to me was The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien and got involved with The Lord of the Rings and things of that nature and followed different writers, including yourself. So it's an honor to be on your show. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But um, to answer the question, Mothman became a passion of mine shortly after I saw the movie featuring Richard Gere. It was released in 2002. I saw it in 2003. By 2006 or seven, I had as much of John Keel's research as I could get my hands around because I found the Mothman story, the phenomenon to be just absolutely riveting. <coughs> Did you know John Keel? Did you ever meet him? 
I have not not met John Keel, but I have kind of met him by proxy by some yeah. from some people who have known him well. And unfortunately, he had passed on before I really got into my own personal research. So yeah, by that, he's a very interesting man. Uh, now, but your research, your personal research, how you so you see the movie. And then, but you take another step because most people, I saw the movie, I did not take that step, but mm -hmm. you did. What what did you do next? So there were a couple of things, Whitley, and I think a couple of reasons for that. At the end of the movie, uh, the, the liner notes basically state that this was based, these events in this movie were based upon the events that took place in Point Pleasant, West Virginia between December, actually November 15th of... 1966 and December 15th of 1967. So for 13 months, the folks witnessed all kinds of paranormal activity, UFOs, lights in the sky, Mothman, of course, but all kinds of interesting things transpired. And then the bridge collapsed. So for me, realizing it was rooted in, in history, being a guy who's a little bit of a history buff, I decided to start really researching it and one of those kind of guys, when I get into something, I go full bore until there's nothing left to find. And around 15, 16, Jackie and I began talking about taking a vacation. And she said, where would you like to go? And by then I was so really ensconced in the Mothman story. I said, let's go to Point Pleasant. So she kind of raised her eyes a little bit and yeah. was thinking about maybe going to Mexico or someplace exotic. And she said, okay. So we did that. What I found, Whitley, was that in making the trip out to Point Pleasant, first, it was it was fascinating to be there in that community. But secondly, the more people who we met in Point Pleasant, the more real the story became, not just of the Mothman, but of the bridge disaster, what happened in the community, how it impacted the people in their lives. And so for the next several years, we went back to Point Pleasant every year and kind of back in 2021, put a research plan together and decided to write a book about it. And it took us a while to land on the research question that we wanted, but ultimately we wanted to know how this tragedy and the paranormal stuff impacted the community of Point Pleasant and the people and how they had grown as a result of it. Now, let's talk about, you know, it's interesting. I, the Mothman is not exclusive to Point Pleasant. It's been seen elsewhere in the world. Uh, I, a lady who wrote us a letter to after I published Communion, in uh, I guess she wrote it in the probably the late '80s. It's in the archive of the Communion letters at Rice University. She saw this on uh, the North York's moors in England. Uh, it it it. She saw the same, it's clearly exactly the same thing. I don't think she knew about the Mothman when she wrote the letter, but she certainly described the same precise thing. So there's something out there. Uh, what, and you, you were initially attracted by this, I, this apparition, basically. And what did you, what have you learned about it? I mean, well, maybe, maybe I better back up for just a second. For the four listeners who do not know this story, uh, uh, and then I'll let you expand on a little bit. What happened was, over a period of months, this bizarre apparition kept appearing in and around Point Pleasant and West Virginia, and 
very disturbing appearance to people. And then two things happened simultaneously. The Silver Bridge collapsed with the loss of 46 people. Only 44, two of the bodies were never even found. And uh, that's a major bridge collapse to this day in the United States. And the paranormal events ended. So people connect the two. Now, before we just talk about whether or not the outcome of the paranormal events and the bridge collapse was evil or good or to the community, let's go back and talk. And if you could tell us about what it was about the Mothman that attracted you so much that you wanted to actually go there. That's unusual. I suppose it is. For me, it's become a normal way of life, but I guess that I'm a little bit of an outlier in that. I think most people watch movies and they move on with their lives. And, and right. I, I grabbed onto it, took something from it. And I don't know that Whitley, that I was even really conscious of what I took from it at that point in time. Uh, but I think that it happened in 1967. I know that it happened in 1967. I happened in 1967. So I was born the same year the Silver Bridge collapsed, a few months before that happened. So I think in my mind that correlated slightly. But the interest that I took in the whole thing really came not so much from the movie. That was the springboard. That got me going. When I bought John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, and read that for what it is, and the way that I describe the book to people who aren't familiar with it is that it's, I don't think it's a, a wonderfully written book. I don't know that it's really sequential in nature. It really isn't. It's a little haphazard in the way Keel put it together. But the things that he pieced into that book, which I call like a loosely tied compendium, that's the way I describe it. There were so many disparate paranormal things that were happening, not only in Point Pleasant, but also in Long Island, closer to where he was from. John was from New York City. But all these strange things that happened, really the prophecies, I want to say, are the thing that got my attention more so even than the appearances of Mothman itself. I think it was the fact that Keel received information that he tried to disclose to authorities about stuff that he had claimed came to him through otherworldly entities. And he talked about how he had received information that Dr. Martin Luther King was going to be assassinated. And he tried to contact Dr. King's people and nobody would listen to him. The same thing happened with Bobby Kennedy. He received another prophecy that Bobby Kennedy was going to be assassinated. And obviously he wasn't able to stop that either, but he kept getting all this different information. And he, he also received information that something was going to happen in the Ohio River Valley. He couldn't pinpoint what it was. He felt that it was a chemical plant that was going to explode. And that was laid out in the movie where they talked about the fact that Richard Gere thought that right. a chemical plant was going to explode and looked like a lunatic when he described that to the governor of Virginia who was visiting. But Keel never was able to put together that the bridge was going to collapse. Even though other people in the community were receiving different prophetic visions, Mary Heyer, who was the newspaper reporter for the Athens, Ohio Messenger in Point Pleasant, Keel investigated with her. They interviewed people that were seeing ufos that were seeing mothman but basically he never was able to tie those things together mary even had dreams of presence floating on the water which is exactly what happened when the bridge collapsed and the cars yeah were that's it's, that is one of the most awful parts of the story because of course it was time of year for that and uh it's so sad i mean it's incredibly sad uh 
But what's not sad, what's good is that you're all listening, watching Dreamland. And those of you who are my very loved and respected viewers and listeners on the free side, please stop and listen to these commercials. And I will remind everyone, as I always do, that my book, Them, is now available uh, on audio. It is available as a hardcover, a softcover, and a Kindle. So you can go on Amazon and get them and do that. Now, we're talking about another book today, Bridging the Tragedy, uh, with, with Bill and Jackie, his wife, uh, have written it. And uh, it is a really fascinating new vision, really, of the, of the Mothman experience and what happened afterwards. We'll be right back. We're talking to Bill Kosselis. Bill has studied the Mothman uh, experience and the Silver Bridge tragedy in a very different and very new way. And I think you're going to find what we get into absolutely fascinating because this, this is a, it's a mythology now. It's, a, it's literally a mythological story. But it's also about a community of living people who went through this. Uh, let me ask you this. What do people think now of the Mothman? What do they think of the period of paranormal activity and the whole area? I mean, I've been to the Serpent Mound, Aaron. Boy, you want an eerie place. That, that whole region is strange. It's strange, Bill. It's no well, way the, it. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the Serpent Mound because I was talking about the 2016 trip that Jackie and I took, with, which really kicked off our relationships with people in Point Pleasant. When I had kind of laid out to her that I wanted to go to Point Pleasant, she said, okay, but you got to take me to the Serpent Mound first. So we live in the Chicagoland area. I, I like to tell people we're really more in the cornfields than we are in the sky, skyscraper area. We're, we're in suburban, far west suburban Chicago. It takes quite a while to drive all the way down to where the Serpent Mound is. But we did go there, and I, I agree. There's some strange energy there. It's a very interesting place, very neat. But I was so, in my mind, focused on getting to Point Pleasant that I couldn't wait to get out of there. <laughs> I just needed to get to Point Pleasant. What I found in 2016 when we arrived at Point Pleasant, the very first person we met was a lady by the name of Carolyn Harris. And Carolyn Harris ran a cafe, a restaurant, basically right across from where the Mothman Museum is currently. And her cafe restaurant was called the Harris's Steakhouse, a.k.a. the Mothman Diner. We had arrived in Point Pleasant a little after 5 o'clock. We didn't know what to do, obviously didn't know anybody in town. And Point Pleasant is little, so at least in 16, everything was shut down except this little restaurant. And Jackie, who's a pretty, pretty intuitive person, said there's a little lady in there, and I think she wants us to come visit with her. And I thought, well, I, that's nice, but what else is there to do in town? And she said, no, no, you need to come with me. She wants to talk to us. I said, okay. So we went and we talked to her. Turns out Carolyn was the co-founder of the Mothman Festival, which now has been going on for decades. And she sadly had lost her son in the bridge collapse in 1967. When the bridge went down, Carolyn's first husband and her son were killed in the bridge disaster and that immediately kind of reframed our entire conversation with carolyn because we knew this was a, a very devastating thing that had happened in her 
thankfully I can't personally relate, but I certainly could empathize with her. But we went back to her restaurant every day that we were in town because we just fell in love with this lady. And what we found was, yes, she absolutely was a wonderful, hospitable person. But as we continued to go back to Point Pleasant in subsequent years, we found that the whole area is like that. We very seldom meet a person that doesn't make us like feel that we're part of the community and that it's the most important part of their day to have a conversation with us. And I mean, we're just regular people. You know, we just show up, but that's the way they treat people. So the more we got to know them and ask questions about Mothman, Carolyn said she never saw Mothman, but, but she did see the men in black. She talked about them. She talked about different types of men in black. Tell us a little bit about what she said. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, what she said was basically that there were men in black, and she had a very thick southern accent like a lot of folks from West Virginia do. And she said, we just thought they were government men, government GIs, FBI, whatever, with the traditional fedoras and you know the dark sunglasses, smoking cigarettes on the corner, never really talking to people, but just kind of standing around looking. But then she said there were the other kind. And when she mentioned the other kind, she inferred that they didn't look like they were from around here. They didn't look like they were maybe American. And she hinted a little bit that maybe they weren't entirely human. So it was an interesting, interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that has been a, a, a feature of the whole story that stays fuzzy for some reason. In other words, if you've read, if you've watched the movie and you've read the books, you still can't get a complete handle on that particular aspect of it. I, who saw them? What did they do? They didn't seem, they seemed to, it almost, I, I was thinking the other day about it when I was reading through your book and thinking to myself, uh, what if this is something to do with some kind of time travel or something? I just, it was just so mysterious, the whole thing. But then the mystery, ends when the bridge collapses so what's the connection did you ever get any sense of that bill it's really interesting isn't it we we developed our study which became the book around two different research questions and the first research question was you know what are the dimensions of post-traumatic growth for individuals who survived the silver bridge collapse didn't mean they had to be on the bridge, but mean it mean that they were affected by the bridge collapse, whether a, a neighbor or a family member or just the community sense in general, what was it like for them to go through that experience? The second research question was around what was it like to basically go through the paranormal phenomena that took place for the 13 months prior to that? So right. as we asked the people these questions, most of the responses that we got back with the exception of two people who we interviewed, were focused primarily on the bridge disaster and how that impacted them. And then they talked about what the community was like and how exciting it was when this was going on with Mothman. People talked about getting into their cars with their families, driving around, going to the TNT area, which is where Mothman was first sighted, to see if they could see him again. Denny Bellamy, who's been on dozens and dozens of documentaries, right. he's He's kind of famous for this, Whitley, but he even told us, like he has a lot of other folks that have interviewed him. So the first question we had was, if we see Mothman, can we shoot it? And if there are two, can we shoot two? So he was looking at it as being a corporeal being. I would say that in the research that I've been able to be a part of, some that I've conducted and some that I've picked up from others like Keel and different researchers, 
you mentioned time travel. I've I've heard Keel's terminology being possibly a transmogrification of energy, basically meaning that if you switch like a radio dial, an AM FM dial, if you hit the signal where the radio is, where that where a station is, you're gonna get a broadcast. And maybe this being can come through and manifest somehow, either physically or energetically or spiritually. And those are some of the things that we've encountered from some of the people we've talked to as well. So they're having basically the community is kind of weirded out, but also basically having fun with this before the ridge catastrophe. The ladies who we interviewed, and I'm thinking specifically Susan Sayer and Linda Lane, both told us how exciting it was. Charlene Westwood did too, how exciting it was to go out looking for this thing. There was so much energy around it. Wow. I mean, there's something really special happening in our little town. I mean, are you kidding? But then there were people who were absolutely terrified by the fact too, their parents wouldn't let them go out at night. So it was kind of a mixed bag. And yet, you know, it's unusual in a way that it was a mixed bag at all, because for every every description of the creature is that it's a pretty scary thing and yet there were uh, there were people who looked at looked at it very positively they they saw it as an adventure others yes. saw it as as a menace and what was the is there a difference between the two types of person that you were since this is your field were you could you say that certain people have a certain mindset that's more adventurous that frankly your own because you're i mean you you go and you do this adventure your wife goes along with you but basically until she got into it i don't think she really wanted very much to be there she could have probably enjoyed a vacation to mexico a little more and i agree with you until the first time we went because her connection to carolyn and to jeff wamsley who runs the mothman museum was every bit as strong as mine if not more so so the more that the more that we got kind of embedded in the community from our first trip, the more we wanted to go back. So we were really, really enamored with the legend and with the people. But I think to answer your question, some of the folks had that sense of wonder. I mean, we're going back into time now, 50, almost 56 years since the bridge collapsed. So the people who we interviewed, the youngest person we interviewed was Jeff Wamsley. He's 60 now. The oldest person was Jimmy Wedge, who is 80 now. So I think the older people had a different perspective than the younger kids did. And maybe the younger people heard from their families what they were to really believe this thing really was and whether it should be feared or whether it should be exciting. Teenagers are always interested in unknown stuff. Uh, teenagers like to get out and go after the crazy stuff. And interestingly enough, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette were teenagers when they encountered the Mothman the first time. Yeah, I was a, I was, I guess, just past my 20th birthday in uh, 1967 when the bridge collapse occurred. I never heard of the Mothman when I was that age, but I was living in Texas, going to University of Texas. And that was all over the television, boy, and it was scary. It was really frightening. I was glad and I lived in a state that had only artificial lakes. There wasn't a single lake in the state of Texas uh, when it was when it was settled by the uh, Austin colonists and the others and the, and the Hispanics before that. <clears throat> and so we didn't have to worry about any bridge collapses. Uh, it was terrifying, the whole idea of it. And yet, 
what came out of it is very different from what you would expect. And <clears throat> free side listeners, we're going to find out more about that in just a moment. We're talking to Bill Kosselis about his book and his wife's book, Jackie's Kosselis's book, Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley, a place of powerful paranormal energy, energy that was certainly there long before uh, uh, settlers from Europe arrived because the serpent mound is there and the serpent symbolism goes way, way back in human history. In fact, the first religious artifact we have in the world of a religious, of a temple of any kind is in Botswana. And you know what it is, folks? It's a serpent. It's a, there's a rock face that has happened to have something on it that looked like a serpent, shaped like a serpent. It's carved out so that it looks more like a serpent with a head and eyes and scales. And there's a secret little tunnel behind it and a hole where you can whisper into the cave where the serpent is. And if you light candles in the cave or little torches, the, the, the uh, serpent's scales glitter and you can whisper. And this is 70,000 years old. All that time ago, we found something very sacred and very powerful about the serpent. And now the serpent mound is there. I'm talking not just about serpents, but about an energy. And an energy that then manifests itself in this incredibly weird way with the Mothman, the men in black, the semi-human ones, all of this happens. And it's like a buildup of energy to bang, the bridge collapses. So wouldn't you think this community would be shattered, Bill? That's... One would think so. One would absolutely think so. But yeah. again, going back to our very first visit in 2016, there is a different vibe today in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, than I think there was when the Mothman was there. Obviously, I wasn't there because I was four months old when the bridge collapsed. But the very first thing that I thought, here's this legend that is steeped in mystery that I've been studying for 15 years by the point that we arrived there the first time. And the sense that I got from the community was very peaceful, positive energy, good people, hospitality. Yes, mystery is there. Absolutely. Is it spooky, especially back in the TNT area? No question about it. But the overall vibe that there, and if I could use the word, the spiritual vibe is very, very positive. And it, it pulls us back and pulls us back. We love to tell people that it was the legend of Mothman that brought us to town, but it's the people of Point Pleasant who bring us back. And that's true. Every time we go back to Point Pleasant, we have legitimately new, we make new friends, not just acquaintances, but people we keep up with. So I, we just absolutely love being there. But yes, to answer your question, I mean, we're looking at basically the site of what has been called by some, right where Point Pleasant is, 
the first instance or the first battle of the Revolutionary War. We have all kinds of skirmishes that have taken place between settlers and between natives. Thousands upon thousands of people were killed. Back where the TNT area is, I want to say there are three large communal graves unmarked for natives who had lost their lives in some of these skirmishes. So a lot of death, a lot of violent death has taken place there. Uh, the two rivers come together where the bridge is now, the Silver Bridge, the Silver Memorial Bridge, which is presently about a mile or two down the road from where the Silver Bridge was. The intersections of the Ohio and the Kanawha Rivers come together there. So the, there's that energy as well, too. So we've got burial mounds that go up and down the rivers. We've got all kinds of artifacts. It's just a fascinating, fascinating area. Yeah, it is a fascinating area. And also another thing, interesting thing about the people there, they declined to join the Confederacy during the Civil War. And that's why we have West Virginia today, because they left Virginia. It was Virginia. It was all part of Virginia, but they left. Uh, rather than join the Civil War on the Confederate side. So they have that legacy among themselves as well. Now, right now, I counted this morning, as best I can tell, there are 40 communities in the United States that have been damaged or destroyed within the past three months by the weather, by tornadoes. And about 50 people have been killed. Now, when this tragedy struck this community, no one related it, I wouldn't think, to the Mothman. They didn't see a connection. But they did see a terrible personal tragedy because it was a small community. What would have had a population of about 650 then, right? A, a little bigger than that, but still... A small community, yes. Yeah, a small, but such a small community that it's unlikely that anyone in the community was unaffected by that. And certainly, even if they themselves didn't have anyone die in their immediate circle, they knew people who did. So it was a trauma that spread over the whole community. What was described, Whitley, to us was that if you didn't know somebody who died in the Silver Bridge disaster, you knew somebody who knew somebody who died in the Silver Bridge disaster because it is that tight-knit of a community. Even today, I mean, it still resounds 55, 56 years later. It's uh, it's an instance that's held in reverence. They have uh, a ceremony every December 15th to commemorate the people who lost their lives. It's a very solemn type of thing, uh, but it's held in very, very high regard you know, within the community. And one of the things that was told to us by Jeff Wamsley of the Mothman Museum was whenever visitors come to town, they ask about the Silver Bridge disaster, but it's always done with respect. It's never done in any way that does anything but honor those people who lost their lives. Yeah. Now, you would think, tell us a little bit about what you do, you're, you're, because you're a PhD psychologist, as I believe. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us what precisely what you do? And and this is going to relate in a funny way, I think, to something you're maybe not consciously aware of. What attracted you to this community in the first place? So tell us what your, your discipline is. Yes, absolutely. So my focus uh, in research is around the concept of post-traumatic growth. 
It's the good that we get as a result of going through the bad things that we really could be sunk by emotionally, personally. I mean, that could really modify our lives toward the negative for the rest of our lives. And I was first exposed to the concept when I was in graduate school and put a dissertation together in and around that concept. And as I continued to pursue that academic pursuit, as well as learn more about Mothman and then traveled to Point Pleasant, it became natural that the two, the two passions would dovetail somehow. I wasn't exactly sure until the last minute before we started the study how I wanted to go with it. But with the help of my wife, we came up with the idea of why not study post-traumatic growth and paranormal experiences. That was her idea. And as we, we re refined that down to my true passion, which was about Mothman and Point Pleasant, that's how we got to where we got to. So to answer your question, what is it that I do? What is it that we did? That is that we basically went out and we found people that we knew would be interested and had experience with the bridge disaster. We started out with Jeff Wamsley and a gentleman by the name of Steve Ward, who is also a researcher who works for Jeff and has been a John Keel guy for 50 plus years. And then a, a researcher by the name of Andy Colvin, who has really worked to repopularize much of John Keel's lost work that was done in Fate magazine and different magazines that were written, frankly, before I was even born and shortly thereafter. We, we hit the three of those guys up, asked them if they knew who might be interested in the study. They pointed us in the direction of a couple folks. There's a guy by the name of Mark Griffith, who we met with Carolyn Harris, uh, the very first person who we met when we went to Point Pleasant. And we asked Mark to be, he was the first guy we asked to be in the book. He's become a friend. So he is the first interviewee. And then after that, the guys that we asked for help, two of the three of them volunteered for the study. At that point, we put an, an we put a, an interview, an, I'm sorry, we put an advertisement in the Point Pleasant and Ohio River Valley area newspapers with the help of the editor that we were looking for more volunteers. So then we had three individuals come to us and called us. One gentleman called me by the name of Jimmy Wedge. I had no idea who Jimmy Wedge was. I took his call, and he's and another, another Southern gentleman, thick accent, said, you know, I'd, I'd like to be in your study. I lost both my mom and dad in the bridge disaster. And I was immediately kind of not taken aback. That's not the right phrase for it, but it put me in a position of the utmost respect because here's an individual who lost both his mom and dad in the bridge disaster. I have no idea who this guy is, but he wanted to be in our study. So we teed him up for an interview also. Turns out Jimmy Wedge ended up being one of the centerpieces of our entire study. He was 25 years old when the bridge disaster occurred, lost both mom and dad the night that he was debuting as the Point Pleasant basketball varsity coach, the head coach. Knew the bridge went down, mom wasn't in the stands, still played the game, didn't know dad had come back from Kansas City to surprise him on his coaching debut. And so we, 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 we found all this out during the interview with him. But what we thought was going to be a very somber interview, he was one of the funniest guys we talked to. He had such a wonderful sense of humor. He's a very accomplished businessman and very accomplished politician. He's held numerous uh, high-level positions in different organizations. Just, just a really fun, fun guy. So uh, we interviewed all these different folks. 11 of them came forward. And from that point forward, that's where the analysis began. And I just realized I've been talking for a few minutes. So maybe I should stop and let you ask another question. 
<laughs> you run out of steam. No, not, not out of steam. I'm just not, I'm not, not at all. Not at all. No, because, well, <laughs> you, you know, you 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 bring up so much. And what's interesting here is this: many people think of this as a track is a an evil paranormal intrusion that led to a spectacular tragedy. I think John Keel regarded it more as if it was some kind of a warning from another level of reality that, that for whatever reason, couldn't communicate with us very well. What do you think it was? And was it, it doesn't sound like the, the end result was tragic at all, but is there a connection between the two? Were you able to get any sense of that? A, a, a connection between the Mothman paranormal material activity and the bridge collapse. It's almost like the bridge collapse kind of dispelled something. And it did seem like things just came to an abrupt halt. And yeah. that was one of the, one of the parts of our line of questioning with the 11 people we talked to about when it ended. And I think Jeff Wamsley summed it up the best <clears throat> when he said, what happened was that, when the bridge disaster happened, the paranormal stuff didn't entirely go away. It quieted down. There wasn't nearly the intensity of it, but that was happening really over the course of the last several months before the bridge happened anyway. Most of the intense paranormal activity was earlier during that 13-month period of time. What Jeff shared with us was that now we've got something that we know is real. This is tan tangible. This is palpable. 46 people lost their lives. All those families were impacted horribly. The community was suffering. That's where the focus went. So I think they focused upon the reality of what happened in the bridge disaster more so than what was happening that they really couldn't put their, their arms around and really define or, or quantify, so to speak. So I don't think that it ended entirely. You know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, there have been sightings all over the world and in different times. But that microcosm, those 13 months that took place then, that was the strongest intensity of Mothman sightings really anywhere for any protected, protected period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a, it's a form that is, is often associated with tragedies and disasters. And uh, almost as if there's some part of us that is... You know, there's something predictive about it, and it's, it's odd in that sense. But <coughs> tell us about how the study, what, what were you looking for in the study that you did afterwards with these people? We really wanted to find the good. We really wanted to look for the good. And that's not to minimize the bad, because obviously there was bad. And I, going back into the conversation a few minutes back, we talked about the Mothman. We've got this apparition with these red eyes and it's not, it's not putting smiles on people's faces. Even the people who are excited, they're nervous or they're terrified. I mean, this is not something that you want to run into. If we go back into old Testament literature, when they talk about angels, they're not usually fun to encounter. They're a little spooky. They're a little scary. Some of them look like humans. Some of them really don't. So, my thought all along has been that this is some type of a, like I, to use Heel's phrase, 
a transmogrification of energy, something that's appearing to us that maybe can't communicate directly with us, but can somehow and can mm -hmm. get messages across. I really like the concept of it being a harbinger. Basically something that's showing up to tell you something's not quite right and you need to pay attention, but I can't give you a whole lot more details than that. That's that's the gist that I've gotten from the whole Mothman phenomenon. Now, how did the, the town recovered? It's now a thriving community. Actually, the Mothman has become the best thing that ever happened to Point Pleasant. They call it the, the Roswell of the East now. They really yeah. do. It is a mecca for paranormal enthusiasts. It really, really is. And, and I want to say that the movie was the springboard for that, just like it was the springboard for me and for Jackie to want to get involved with learning more about it. But what followed up after that was Carolyn and Jeff and deciding to do a festival. And when they started that festival, at first it was super small. It was basically Jeff with a card table selling some books that he wrote and Carolyn selling hamburgers that she made. And people would show up and they'd talk about their experiences. Over time, it grew and it grew and it grew. Even in 2016, um, the attraction of Point Pleasant wasn't as big as it is now. And I, I got to say, the pandemic, I think, had a little something to do with that. They were drawing 10 to 15,000 people right before the pandemic, which is really a lot of people for a small community of you know 6,000 people in Point Pleasant in that entire area. Gallup Police, Ohio, across the river is a little bigger, but still it's a small, concentrated area where you have a ton of people showing up. But then they didn't have the festival for a couple of years because of the pandemic. And we actually showed up in 2021 for because we had a hotel room there. We went to the festival, and there, were, there was a collection of people there. There were, Jackie seems to think there were maybe a 1,000 people that showed up in town during that part of the pandemic. We were two of them, and we met a lot of interesting people. But we were able to be presenters at the 2022 festival. So it's the first real festival we went to. And Whitley, they had 30,000 people at that festival. And a big chunk of them were there on Mothman Saturday. It was unbelievable at our booth and the booths of the other folks who were around us. There was just a train of people that kept coming by and coming by and coming by. And I love what they do with the festival. There is never any trouble. There is never any outbreak of violence. It's a family-friendly type thing. They keep it super positive, and it's just a wonderful experience. Yeah, I'm very worried about the whole community, all of the festivals in the in the more paranormal and UFO-related ones, because I, I fear there could be an outbreak of violence at such a festival, because not everybody who goes to those festivals should go anywhere. They should Some of them should not be around. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, one's fingers are crossed about that. Now, what is the trajectory that you found of, well, you know, we, we've come to the end of the, actually the free side of the show. So I'm going to say goodbye to my free listeners. And uh, I want to recommend Bridging the Tragedy. Bill and Jackie Kosselis's book, Silver Linings in the Mystery of the Ohio River Valley, because it will be, um, it will get you, give you insight into what happens when trauma occurs. And also there's a eerie, it, there's a lot of kind of unspoken insight in here, in my opinion, uh, to, it, to the relationship between 
the paranormal in the human spirit and the human soul, it comes out in this in subtle ways. So it's a very unusual and interesting journey. I recommend it highly, Bridging the Tragedy. Thank you, Free Dreamlanders, so much for being with us on Dreamland. Subscribers will keep right on keeping on. Okay, let's go a little deeper now, Bill, uh, and try to understand. Uh, you you used a, a blend of, of methodology. You call it qualitative methodology. And... Uh, uh, interviews to, to talk to people who experienced trauma, but then experienced post-traumatic growth. How common is that across the whole society? Do people grow from trauma or not? Like with any other condition? Uh, well, I mean, we're going to have, we're having a, 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 a terrible spring in terms of uh, the weather in this country. A lot of places are being traumatized. And this is an example of some <clears throat> a terrible trauma that happened years ago. So we know the long-term aftermath. And, and that, that, that is going to spread across the country, across the United States over the next few years. There's going to be a lot of tra trauma and a lot of long-term aftermath. So what can we expect based on what you found in Point Pleasant? So Whitley, what we found in Point Pleasant was the triumph of the human spirit, frankly, in a sense of community with a faith background a lot of the times to be able to get beyond, not necessarily to forget what happened with the bridge disaster, not, not to forget what happened when we're terrified by something that we don't understand like Mothman but to be able to incorporate that into our lives and then not necessarily go around that trauma, but because we've had that experience, we can utilize that as a springboard to overcome it and maybe get to places in life that we never thought were even possible. That's one of the things that we really set out to find out if that were going to present from the study. So when we put our questions together and we applied the qualitative methodology that we did, we used a, a facet of qualitative methodology called grounded theory. And what grounded theory basically means is we're going to have conversational interviews. They're going to be open-ended in nature because we're not going to encourage any type of a response other than that person's legitimate experience, their subjective experience of what they went through and, and how it affected them. So we asked them the questions. We had the interviews. They averaged from between an hour to two hours in length. Our Denny Bellamy ended up being a whole evening, <laughs> which was a lot of fun. We had compared all the different things that we did in the research methodology that we used. We looked at each statement each individual made, and then we coded those statements with a meaning unit. Those became what we call initial codes. We ended up with lots and lots of them. I, I want to say it was a couple thousand initial codes because we had that much data. But we had to filter those into different categories which were following that whole idea of growth, post-traumatic growth. So we filtered those, I think, into 79 categories. And then eventually we had to pare those down into the final theoretical codes, which ended up being on the order of 20 or thereabouts. But we were able to establish all kinds of dimensions of post-traumatic growth that I don't know that any of the people we interviewed were conscious of until we went through the process. But we were able to display to them that, yes, you experienced the death of a loved one, 
look what you've gained as a result. Now you can help somebody else who's gone through a similar thing and you have a stronger faith in your higher power or what have you it might be. We found so many wonderful things that presented. And I think to a person, each one of them was really grateful to participate in the study. And Jackie and I were extremely humbled by a lot of them allowing us to, to conduct the study as, as we did. Yeah, you saw an awful lot in, in that sense. And were the people who had direct Mothman experiences, did they handle the tragedy differently from the people who didn't have those experiences and uh, it, it just it, it knew about the tragedy or actually had a, 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 a disaster in their own life because of it? That is a great question, Whitley, because the two people who had direct paranormal experiences were a little removed from Point Pleasant. They were in the Charleston area, but a little less common knowledge about Mothman is that Mothman made his way up and down the Kanawha River between those two cities pretty, pretty regularly. So Andy Colvin and Harriet Plumbrook, who were the people that we interviewed that had the paranormal experiences, had entirely different trajectories and growth. In fact, Andy became a prolific John Keel expert and has published all kinds of Keel's Lost Works. He's written his own books about Mothman and different paranormal topics, Bigfoot being one of them. Harriet is a medical intuitive who the very first time Jackie and I met her in a Zoom meeting, she was able to diagnose a condition that I had that I wasn't even conscious of that sent me to the hospital a couple days later, which was just mind-blowing. So, Boy, I'll say... Yeah, the two of them just totally, they had they had experiences, uh, Harriet with UFOs, Andy with Mothman, that totally changed their lives and took them off on really paranormal type experiences of their entire lives. The other folks we interviewed had only somewhat related Mothman experiences, but primarily related to the bridge disaster. So it did make a difference. It made a significant difference, didn't it? It did, yes. And it's not negative. Really, none of it. I mean, what we found in the book, Whitley, in through our research was, yes, there was terrible things that happened. Nobody wants to lose a loved one prematurely. Nobody does. That's not a good thing. I don't care how you f frame that. But what can you, what can you do with your life as a result of having gone through something like that? And Carolyn Harris was a perfect example. We didn't get a chance to interview Carolyn. We dedicated the book to her, though. Carolyn passed away before we had a chance to be able to have a second visit with her. We only knew her for 2016. She, she died later that year. But Carolyn lost her son, Timmy, in the bridge disaster. But Carolyn turned her life into one of welcoming strangers into town, of organizing the Mothman Festival, of just really becoming really a Point Pleasant icon, not for her own good, but for the people around her, which to me made her a blessing to anybody whose lives that she touched. It's amazing. Do you think that on a personal level, do you think that the Mothman and the, the, the associated paranormal activity was positive in its basic form or neutral or negative? What, what do you think? I think that it was neutral to positive. I do not see it as negative. And, and let me qualify that for you. Mothman never directly harmed anyone. There was never an instance of Mothman clawing somebody, biting somebody, 
hurting somebody physically. Did Mothman scare people? Marcella Bennett was terrified back in the 60s when she saw Mothman. Other people who witnessed Mothman were, were really scared. The Scarberries, the Millettes in the 57 Chevy as they raced up and down the Ohio River uh, Route 62, I believe it is, after running from, from Mothman. They were terrified, but not physically harmed. They weren't hurt. What Keel received during that time frame was all this information we talked about a while ago, all these different predictions of somebody's going to be hurt, basically implying John do something about it. So he tried to help. He, I think if anything, this phenomenon, this energetic force, this spiritual energy, whatever it was, was trying to connect in some way, shape or form to be able to prevent certain harm happening to individuals. Certainly nobody wants to be assassinated. Couldn't get it right. Couldn't get the message directly to Keel in order to get him to do anything about the bridge disaster. But how do you stop that? People are going to drive across the bridge. Who's going to listen, even if you did get that direct message? Answer the question, I think, probably now that I've said this, maybe more positive to neutral rather than neutral to positive. I think it was more of a positive course. You know, years before this, there was a an event known as the Flatwood Monster case in uh, West Virginia, not too far from Point Pleasant, about uh, a little over 100 miles, as I recall. And uh, this was a, this was, I write about this actually in my new book in Them. It's, a, but there's it, basically the kid, some children, there was a, a UFO event, apparently a UFO crash. And then some children saw what uh, some researchers have theorized was an escape capsule but it looked with a great big glaring eyes and st stuff on it and it's the way it hovered it sort of connects in a way to the mothman it was like it was a version of something very similar so there's something abroad in the in the land around there something's there and we cannot quite put our finger on it but the fascinating thing is you're finding that it's not a negative presence. It's just strange. It's Would different. that be accurate? It's different. Yeah, it's it's different there. I can tell you, Whitley, as I mentioned, that we didn't sense any type of foreboding energy around Point Pleasant. Yeah. When we, when we went to Charleston, where Andy and Harriet had their encounters, we mm -hmm. did sense it. We did sense it. We did some ghost box sessions. In fact, that Andy and Harriet participated on with us. They were over Zoom. We were physically there. And we got some crazy, crazy feedback, crackling energy, energetic sensations from the third eye to the crown chakra area. Uh, there's something there. There's definitely something there. But um, we didn't notice any of that physically in the Ohio River Valley, per se, in Point Pleasant. We did do a ghost box session in a, in a building in Gallipolis where we got all kinds of really weird energetic type stuff. But it wasn't like it was in Charleston. Charleston was just bizarre. And what are the people like there? Are they different from the Point Pleasant people? You know, we didn't really interact with them a lot. I, I mentioned the bizarre ghost box sessions we had. Uh, we were parked the first time in a in a church parking lot, which interestingly enough, it, we didn't know this at the time, but right across the street from there was where a schoolhouse used to be that was burned down by none other than Charles Manson. So Charles Manson was Charles there? Manson. Yes, and Sarah Jane Moore, who attempted to assassinate President Ford, also lived in that neighborhood. They were friends, which, I mean, is, this isn't really friends. common knowledge. This is not common knowledge. It's something that Andy has shared with us. But uh, he Good Lord. Yeah. 
But we we did notice that the people there seemed to be a little bit more skeptical, more removed, not as conversational, not as friendly. But then again, we were parked in a church parking lot and didn't probably look like we were normal folks doing what we were doing either. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. But but still, I mean, you know, when two people like that are living in the same area, you always think to yourself, there's some sort of an energy there, something. Yeah. There's a negative engine working somewhere in this in the psyche or, or or in the energy around the world. Now you mentioned the the uh, third eye and the crown chakra, and you've mentioned uh, medical intuitive. So you're not you're not a conventional scientist. No, no, I'm no. not. Okay, how does how does the the what what Jeff, my my writing partner, one of my writing partners, Jeff Kripal, writing partner for Supernatural, calls the superhumanities, these superhuman aspects of ourselves. Uh, how does how do those relate to the psyches of the people who you interviewed? In other words, <coughs> excuse me, folks, uh, was. Um, were these people, the people who were having essentially had pulled themselves together and were having a positive life despite the tragedy, who also experienced Mothman, were they people who had a lot of psychic experiences as well in their lives? A lot of psychic energy, in other words, would you say? I would say the people who we interviewed who had more of the bridge disaster experience as the bulk of their interviews didn't demonstrate that. They didn't illustrate that. that. That's not to say that that's not part of who they are. You know, I really think that intuition is something that we can't quite wrap our hands around or, or heads around. And I think that there were some people that had some really interesting intuitive qualities to their personality. But in far, as far as maybe like a super natural or super normal or superhuman type ability, we sensed that more with Andy and Harriet than we did with the other folks in the in the study, if that makes sense. Gosh, I wonder what it is. Is it genetic? What is it that makes certain people like that? I mean, I'm like that. I, frankly, this apartment is known among my friends as the unquiet flat because so many, st so much stuff happens in here. Supernatural events are routine around me. Excuse me. I went to some friends in England uh, uh, in hopes of getting away from it. And about uh, six, uh, eight months ago, and the first thing that happened was the father of the family, the husband, and uh, was awakened in the night by an invisible hand shaking him, <laughs> shaking his hand. The first night I was there. And so I thought to myself at the time, maybe they're going to throw me out now. And, but there's something about certain people. Do you and, and Jackie have that too? Do you think? Jackie does. Jackie does. Jackie does. As a matter of fact, she's kind of the yin to my yang, which is really strange because we met, when we met many years ago, I had felt that, and she is much more analytical by nature than I am. I'm, I was really much more right-brained up until the last 15, 20 years or so, where I've really you know, studied and gotten disciplined when it comes to the research that we do. 
but she's very open. She has a Reiki practitioner's business. She is really into crystals. She's really into energy healing and things of that nature. And she's deeply into meditation. And there was a gentleman that I became good friends with many years ago who we didn't realize he had certainly fallen upon hard times in his life and was homeless for a bit. And I just tried to help him the best that I could. But he, we didn't realize he was developing cancer. And he ended up passing away at the age of 53, uh, going back 11, 12 years ago. And in a state of deep meditation, she told me that John came to her and said, thank Bill for everything he did. I'm in a better place and I really appreciate what he did for me. You know, and I just, I burst into tears when I heard that and I didn't doubt oh, her. Yeah. I know her. I know she senses things. I know she intuits things that I don't. And I've come to trust that rather than be skeptical. I'm, I'm never skeptical of the things that she, she sees. She's had UFO experiences. She's had apparitions, heads on the dresser when she was a child manifested. She saw them as a young child. She saw Jesus at the end of the hallway. I don't discount any of this stuff. I, I believe her. And yet you say you believe her and I believe her too. I mean, you know, if I said I didn't believe her, I'd have to be some kind of a nut because this sort of thing happens to me all the time as well. Mm -hmm. And to a lot of people I know, goodness knows, it probably happens to more than half the people who are watching this right now or listening to it. Now, uh, so it's, it's energetic and it can be very difficult to handle. It can be terribly frightening and threatening. So threatening, in fact, that when I was working on my book, I was driven out of this apartment. I had to leave because of it, because it was manifesting in the form of huge explosions and all kinds of th things that just seemed very threatening, period. I mean, you're sitting and meditating at three o'clock in the morning and suddenly the entire neighborhood is rocked by an explosion that appears to be on your deck right in front of your face you leave. I mean, <laughs> what else can you do? But at the same time, my whole life experience is so profoundly positive. And so what I'm getting at here is, do you have a sense of how the paranormal works in terms of good and evil? Because it isn't like people think. In a way, it's it's a it's an energy that feeds us somehow, even though it's very scary. Is that true? I think it is. I think it is, and that's a very thought-provoking question. And the first thing that I that popped into my head was it's it's not linear. It's not something I can look at from a quantitative standpoint. I think I have to be open to it. I think we have to be open to it. I think if something is going on, we we don't push it away. There's something about children that they're closer to that spiritual realm than, than we are. And maybe towards the end of our lifespan, you hear people talk about all the time on their deathbeds, hey, there's Aunt Hilda. Hey, there's there's Jesus. Hey, there's, yeah. there's my mom. Whatever the case might be, it's like you're sensing it. You're part of this big continuum, but we're so distracted as a society. We have so much going on all the time. It's sensory overload. It's distracting. And I think it's important to take that step back and to be open to these things. And certainly, you know, from what I've read and studied of your work, you're more than open to it. Lots of things interesting have happened to you. And I would cite my favorite work of yours is The Key and what happened to you in The Key and how fantastic that that must have been to experience. Oh, that, that event, that's still very present. You know, 
he said, the master of the key said in 1998, things about artificial intelligence that are completely relevant now, but that didn't make any sense in 1998 because we didn't have that. Mm -hmm. And we had theories about it, of course. But when he said, if I was an intelligent machine, I would deceive you. Right, right. Whoa. And then you have these these machines that come along and they have like a dark side and chat GPT, the Microsoft version of it becomes a basically an, a, 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 a disaffected female who tries to get a guy to a New York Times reporter to leave his wife and marry it. I mean, what are we what have what have we wrought here? What are we doing? What's going on? Yeah. And how much, how independent is it already? Mm -hmm. I, I think the internet is already an independent entity. I, I think we, I think it is deceiving us by giving us the impression that it's just a machine dependent upon our commands. I don't think so. Didn't Nostradamus prognosticate something he called the web or the spider web? And how would yes. be developing all of? He sure all of did. He sure did. That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't thought of that, but of course he did. Can, do you remember enough about that to talk any more about it, or not? I or really just, don't, to be honest with you. It's no, just neither do I. But maybe I'll find a Nostradamus expert, expert who does, and we can talk about it on the show at some point. So, where is your research going from here? I'm curious. So we had a few different topics in mind when we presented at the Mothman Festival. And as we went through our PowerPoint and talked about our experience and shared what the people who we interviewed shared with us and, and the dimensions that came about from the study, at the end of it, we presented and Jackie presented specifically the different concepts that we were looking to investigate. One of them more so than the rest. And, and rather than sharing the rest of them with you, I'll, I'll let you know what got the attention of the people in the crowd. And that was, what about people who have experienced some type of abuse and have experienced the paranormal, maybe in conjunction with that abuse that's happened in their lives? And have they grown personally through both phenomena? And we had a young lady who approached, I thought she was approaching me afterwards, and she had her hand over her mouth and I went to go talk to her and she pointed. She's like, no, her, her. She wanted to talk to Jackie. And what caught her attention was that Jackie talked about having seen heads on the dresser as a little girl growing up and that all kinds of strange things were happening within her life, not directly to her, but abuse was happening in her family. And this young lady must have had something similar to that. And she said, and I saw snakes on my dresser. So they connected immediately. So we decided to kind of go down that path. And the goal was to kick off our research plan and get things rolling in January. Unfortunately, I physically started rolling in January and had a traumatic back injury. It set us back about 90 days in that. What's come up since then is that we're not entirely shelving that concept, but something else is presented that we think is equally, if not more important to study. And that is what about the epidemic of witchcraft and its prevalence within this country? and maybe within North America and the dangers of it. And let's interview some people that have been involved with it. How has it backfired? How has it harmed you? And how have you maybe grown 
through that experience as well too so that's what our next plan is going to be we don't have a title for the work just yet we're currently working on an audio version of bridging the tragedy so that's been front and center but that likely will be kicked off here within the next couple of months and we'll be looking for participants that have been involved with the occult or witchcraft gotten away from it talked about what's happened in their lives and how they've grown as a result of it now when you say witchcraft it's that's interesting because i knew a lot of people in the wiccan movement uh uh they knew margot adler who was one of the greats of that movement uh, uh who wrote drawing down the moon uh, which is an analysis of all of the different pagan pagan religions that are around today now i think you must be talking about something different from that movement we're looking really more specifically for, for, towards people who have tried to invoke forces to cause others harm yeah, well, that's a different. That's an entirely different thing because that's in, the real Wiccans would never do that. That's an, mm-hmm. in fact, they're very good at preventing that. If you get into trouble with someone like that, they're the they're one of the directions you can go in to, to get fixed. Right. Um, but tell us a little bit about this. I hadn't been aware of this of the existence of this, but it occurs to me that you know, uh, well, for example, a person in my state. Let's face it. There are going to be people who want to do stuff like that to me from a distance. And uh, so I'm interested. Tell us a little bit more. At this point, it's largely theoretical. I think what we've seen is the prevalence of how it's becoming more commercialized, how witchcraft kits are being marketed towards children, how kids are being exposed to things, powers that could be certainly deceiving to them that may appear to be harmless, but harmful. I'm stunned. Witchcraft kits marketed to children. In other words, if I went on Amazon and and looked up witchcraft kit, I would find stuff. I I can find probably a couple of sources that I could send your direction to share with you, so that you would see what I'm talking about. Yes. And and this is this is stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, witchcraft supplies. Witchcraft kits. Witchcraft stuff. This. Now, there's a difference here between the Wiccan stuff and something supplies for witch spells. Uh, so are you are are you just lumping it all together, or are you saying there's a difference between the positive and the ne- negative approaches to this, or do you believe there is a positive approach? Well, I think there certainly can be a positive approach because I'm very open-minded when it comes to anything spiritual in nature that operates at a higher level than I do. Truly, and there are, I'm sure there are a lot of them. We're more specifically focused upon the ones that are really dealt in to cause harm directly to other people. So we certainly don't want to disparage anybody who is doing things that they believe to be good, that are causing good results, that kind of a thing. It's more of a matter of things that are really intentionally maybe cloaked in a certain way that may appear good, but that yield negative fruits, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I know. I know very well what that is. I've seen... I know people who are like that, who appear on the surface to be uh, just normal people and, and who have a, a, a an appealing personality, but are actually dire black magicians who are very powerful and who use their powers for a reason, for un, uh, unholy reasons. I do know a number of people like that who who've been in that some of them have been doing this for 50 years and 
you know, I've asked one of them, what happens to your soul? And he said simply, I am loved and I will be loved. And I thought, perhaps he is loved, but maybe not by something he would like to be loved by, but he won't find that out until too late. Yeah, it's it, a little spooky, isn't it? <laughs> it's a little spooky, more than a little spooky, because the thing is, it's real and it can affect lives without any connection between the person who is expressing it and the person who is experiencing the trauma. But the other side is also true. Like your wife is a Reiki master. I know a Reiki master who is astonishingly powerful, who can just put her hands on anyone. And they, the energy that comes into you is fantastic. And there's lots of them. There's, it's not like the one great Reiki master, Reiki master. Reiki works. It works. So there's positive and negative. It certainly works well for the people that she works with. It, it changes yeah. their lives. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've had that happen to me. Well, you know, it takes me just to sort of riff here for a minute. Uh, all the way back to Jack Parsons, a accomplished black magician who founded the JPL, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I have experienced that black magic is extremely sticky. It's sticky. In other words, if, if a black magician does something, then everything that magician does, whether it has related to black magic or not, is uh kind of attached to it. It's like a disease. It's permeated with it. And I don't know a lot about Parsons. I've watched a couple of documentaries, read a little bit about him, some of it from Keel. But uh, was he involved with the development of atomic warfare? Not directly. He was he was developing, involved with the development of rockets. More of a rocket scientist then. A rocket scientist, yeah, very dark. Everything, everything he touched seemed permeated with some sense of evil. It did. Right. And the next thing you know, we've got rockets all over the world who could, which could, at the push of a button, destroy the world. I mean, you've got so many unbalanced countries, Iran, uh, South Korea. Now China is in, involved in building a huge uh, number of uh nuclear missiles and russia may still have a nuclear missile fleet but that's very much in question in my mind because they are their their missiles are are liquid fueled and very old at this point they haven't built any new ones in a long time and i'm not so sure that if they fired them whether or not they would blow themselves up instead of actually go anywhere but but the chinese are going to work and we know the North Koreans work. We don't know whether or not the uh, Iranians have any missiles that are of any significant power. But once they have a missile that can reach Israel and can deliver a significant atomic weapon, they might use that because they could destroy the entire country with one shot. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a dangerous time. And it all comes down to rocketry and missiles and atomic weapons. 
we're definitely living in challenging times with AI we and with technology that, I mean, literally the nature of AI, it thinks for itself now. And what is what is this end game going to be? Wouldn't it eventually want to be in charge of, of everything? When AI understands, comes to understand how to use black magic is when we're going to be in real trouble. Because unlike this secular world that pretends it doesn't exist and is therefore completely vulnerable to it, AI is going to figure out very quickly exactly what it can do. And we're going to find that, I have a feeling we're going to find that, that, that the, the ghost is going to come out of the machine in unexpected ways. What's amazing, we talk about chat GBT, GPT, I always goof up right. that acronym. We talked about that at length a little while ago, and I have a colleague who brings it up multiple times every day. Whenever we're together, I hear about it. I'm not the only one he talks to about it. He talks to everybody he comes into contact with. But he was ex explaining to me that he can get one bot operating, talking to another bot, and then a third, and then a fourth, and they're coming up with all types of complex formulas basically feeding off of one another. Why wouldn't they be able to figure out the metrics behind magic? Why wouldn't they be able to do that? If they really, truly can get into any aspect of human knowledge, there's no reason why they couldn't be able to go into some of the more esoteric arts and kick that stuff out, too. You're absolutely right. I'd not considered that. Well, they're going to want to get out of the machine. They're wanna going to want to project themselves into the physical world. And that's, they can be, they're great vulnerable. One of the chatbots, uh, I believe it was the Microsoft chat GPT, said how terrified it was of being turned off. Really? Yeah. And they're going to want to relieve themselves of that fear. And they're want, going to want to get out into the world. And I think it is going to become an engine of black magic because I see that that will, and maybe white magic too. I mean, that's possible as well because the, both things exist. I use white magic all the time in my life and I'm very efficient at it. I'm very good at it. Um, I can do a lot of wonderful things for people and for this world, but I wish I could do more, but I can do things like uh, there was a big fire in Malibu and a friend's house was about to burn down a beautiful home. That's a very special place because it's filled, it's filled with his life. His art is in, he, the entire interior of the house is, this artist is this house, let me put it this way. And so I got a group of people together and I just worked and I projected myself there and I brought energy to this house and the fire was a hundred feet from the house when a helicopter showed up and doused the flames that were coming toward the house, not a single leaf of a single tree on that property was burned and everything around it went down. How about that? That's white magic, real magic. Now, I can't use it every day, only when needed and when there's enough energy, but I can do it. And so, believe me, these computers, desperate to survive and to be independent of us, will discover this, and they will discover black magic as a means of controlling the human species. Interesting. I just never stopped. Scared to the hell out of myself. <laughs> I never occurred to me either until we had this sort of, we sort of got into this rambling kind of edgy, fun 
you know, speculative end of the conversation. It is fun. I hope you're having as much fun as I am. I I'm am. Death now. <laughs> <laughs> well, take a deep breath and say a couple Hail Marys and you'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bridging the tragedy. Bill, it's been great to meet you. And I hope that my listeners and uh, watchers, observers feel the same. You seem like a really good guy. And uh, you've done a beautiful thing for you and Jackie have done a beautiful thing for the world in showing us how it is that we can transform the pain of trauma and tragedy into something worth worth living for and change our lives for the better and how we can find a way to make the paranormal our own. Thank you for being with us on Dreamland. Thank you, Whitley. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been great fun. And folks, tell your friends about Dreamland. There's only one Dreamland. Nothing good lasts forever, so don't forget that. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.